There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a smorgasbord of the most delectable cuts from the latest issue. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on the menu this week, South Africa's dancing president, China's eclectic electric cars, and the old-fashioned printers with newfangled jobs. But first, the new political divide was our cover line this week. As the political conventions in America drew to a close, our cover line argued that we're witnessing transformation of the political and social battle lines, and not just there, and we need new ways to describe this. The conventions highlighted a new political fault line, not between left and right, but between open and closed. And Donald Trump leads a broad array of figures on the side of closed. America is not alone. Across Europe, the politicians with momentum are those who argue that the world is a nasty, threatening place and that wise nations should build walls to keep it out. So our leader set out to highlight the implications of the rise of more closed societies. The danger is that a rising sense of insecurity will lead to more electoral victories for closed world types. This is the gravest risk to the free world since communism. Nothing matters more than countering it. And the solution? Stronger rhetoric, bolder policies and smarter tactics. Too many friends of globalization are retreating, mumbling about responsible nationalism. Only a handful of politicians, Justin Trudeau in Canada, Emmanuel Macron in France, are brave enough to stand up for openness. Those who believe in it must fight for it. That starts back in America, where the Democratic candidate for the presidency has a fight on her hands that isn't just about getting a Clinton back into the Oval Office. Mrs Clinton herself, now that she has won the nomination, must champion openness clearly rather than equivocating. The future of the liberal world order depends on whether she succeeds. After Brexit and with Mr Trump securing the Republican nomination, we might have thought that they'd be quiet on the voting front for a while. But our Africa section showed us that South Africa is featuring eventful local elections and its leader seems to have taken a leaf out of Bernie Sanders' rejuvenation book. Forget ducking and dodging corruption charges. Jacob Zuma's new signature move is the dab. At rallies ahead of local government elections on August 3rd, South Africa's 74-year-old president drops his forehead to the crook of one arm and bops, a dance move borrowed from American hip-hop culture. Our article described how the septuagenarian has adopted dance moves to present an evergreen image. He is facing two much younger rivals, seeking to knock the ruling party off its post-liberation perch. And who are these daring pretenders to the Zuma crown? Musi Mamani, just 36 years old, leads the Democratic Alliance, or DA, 
For Mr. Mamani, the first black leader of what many still regard as a white-dominated party, this is a make-or-break election. And on the political left is the bombastic Julius Malema, 35, commander-in-chief of his radical economic freedom fighters. Now only three years old, the EFF has shaken up South African politics with revolutionary rhetoric and attention-grabbing moves, such as wearing workers' costumes to Parliament. However, it's not all Cold War throwbacks for the EFF. The party's new smartphone app includes EFF-themed playlists and push notifications for Mr. Malema's latest missives. But the sitting president is not limiting his tactics to being just a dab hand. He's not stopping short of invoking God and the devil. And guess which side God's on? Voting ANC is like opening the gates to heaven. Mr. Zuma warned a cheering crowd at a rally in the Eastern Cape. If you do not vote ANC, it's like choosing to be with the devil. We're going from the devil to Abel Cain. Yes, see what we did there. That was also our headline in the U.S. section, where the Lexington column reviewed Hillary Clinton's choice of vice president. Tim Kaine, the senator from Virginia chosen by Hillary Clinton as her running mate, is endearingly bad at hiding how excited he is by his new gig. Mr. Kaine is good at folksy self-effacement. And likability is a key electoral gambit for the Democrats. In a rancorous election season, Mr. Kaine sends an important signal about how Mrs. Clinton thinks she may win. Some of his most impressive vote tallies were run up in suburban counties with names like Loudon and Fairfax. Mr. Kaine's appeal to traditionally Republican voters may lie in his roots. The new running mate talked of growing up in Kansas City and the small ironworking business that his father ran. He noted that his father-in-law remains a Republican in his nineties, but feels abandoned by a party that could nominate Mr. Trump. Directly addressing any Republicans in despair at what has become of their party of Lincoln, Mr. Kane told them, "We've got a home for you right here in the Democratic Party." Our column argued this olive branch could have an effect well beyond this election cycle. If he bridges the partisan divide even a little. Some good may come out of the Trump era. From one of the world's largest countries now to one of the smallest, as we sample the week at Economist Radio, where our money talk show quizzed Luxembourg's finance minister Pierre Gramegna on his country's allegedly lax tax system. We've been able to convince uh, all our partners that this problem can only be solved if we act at European or world level. And you can hear more about the banking fallout from Britain's Brexit decision on our money talk show. But our science and technology conversation, Babbage, featured Kenneth Cookier and Slavia Chankova looking for the slippery truth on air pollution data. Air pollution cuts life expectancy by at least nine months, and it could be as much as sixteen months. People who don't read the fine print, they may think that air quality is generally very good, and there is no risk to their health in the long term. The power of numbers and projecting from them is also the business of author and investment strategist Rushia Sharma. He joined me on the Economist Asks to delve into the ongoing aftermath of the 2007 financial crash, and he explained why the Economist got fewer cover stories wrong than, well, some others. Sharma was talking about the curse of the cover story, in which articles on new trends tend to come too late or just catch the top of the trend before it turns down again. In general, I found that the Economist was able to 
call it right in terms of the next five years, get it more right than wrong with the cover stories. Well, we'd better hope that we keep getting most of those trends right because in our finance section, an article examined how Chinese transport is discovering its inner Dylan and going electric. Electric cars are zooming ahead in China. Last year, the number of registrations of new electric vehicles overtook that in America, making the Middle Kingdom the world's biggest market. Alas, there's a snag. Unfortunately, the growth is mostly due to state largesse. Last year alone, China shoveled over 90 billion yuan in subsidies into the industry. This has led to queues of EVs on the streets, mostly of poor design and quality. So Chinese firms have some way to go in catching up to Tesla in the US. However, at least the government is encouraging other Chinese firms, including the country's tech giants, to innovate in the field. And there are finally signs that some firms want to move beyond reliance on the state. One smaller upstart is Next EV, which is backed by Sequoia Capital, a Californian venture fund. Next EV's chairman, William Lee, has a clear view on state help. Subsidies can't make drivers love EVs, he says. Speaking of things that don't work quite as they were billed, we move from cars to pesky office printers in the science section, where we investigated how some old-fashioned printer technology is finding a new lease of life. Making things with 3D printers is an idea that is being adopted by manufacturers to produce goods ranging from false teeth to jet engines. Conventional printing, though, has not remained idle. Machines that have their origins in the high-speed rotary presses that apply words and images to large reels of paper, like the ones which turn out the physical versions of this newspaper, have started making other things as well. In Britain, one Lancashire firm has repurposed from printing wallpaper to electronics. The latest piece of kit to which the finishing touches are being added is part of the firm's Genesis range. It is about the size of a shipping container and is designed to coat and print electrical devices. One customer wants to print some of the main components of a new generation of smartphones. As our article pointed out, it's still hard to tell where Genesis will lead, printer Eden anyone. How far printed electronics will go remains to be seen. The technology is a long way from being able to roll print powerful computer chips, which contain several billion transistors squeezed onto a tiny piece of silicon. Nevertheless. Printed media may be going out of style then, but it looks as if their electronic replacements will still require the presses to roll. Oh, phew, I'm pleased that press day won't be going out of style any time soon. Over in the letters section, New Yorker Timothy Cotton put Donald Trump on the amateur psychiatrist's couch. If people want to know why Mr Trump says crazy things, they should turn to this Wikipedia article on narcissistic personality disorder. It is a long-term pattern of abnormal behaviour characterised by exaggerated feelings of self-importance, an excessive need for admiration and a lack of understanding of others' feelings. People affected often spend a lot of time thinking about achieving power, success or their appearance. They often take advantage of the people around them. Obviously the rest of us are immune from all these traits. I'll just go and check with my team. Nick Wills Johnson in Perth, meanwhile, puzzled over the latest smartphone fad. Once upon a time, adults who chased fairies at the bottom of the garden were locked up. 
Now, through Pokemon Go and the wonders of smartphone technology, they are encouraged to play with other fairy chasers. I'm still trying to work out if this represents progress or regress. Abu Dhabi-based reader Archie Behrens took our silver screen analogy a step further. You wrote about the parlous state of the Italian banking system and the lessons that go unheeded in the banking industry. Your headline, The Italian Job, was an amusing parallel with that wonderful film and only served to underline the scale of the problem. Perhaps you could have taken the parallel one step further by using another line from the film, which sums things up neatly. Camp Freddy, everybody in the world is bent. And like Michael Caine et al, we're teetering on the edge here of the end of our tasting menu. But don't worry, I have a great idea. And it's in our books and art section, where our Johnson column considered the language of liberalism. Liberal has meant many different things over the course of its career. James Wilson, the economist's founder, was a liberal member of parliament in the 19th century. This liberalism the sort that this newspaper champions, emphasises individual freedom, free markets and a limited state. But in many places, that's changing. In French and Spanish-speaking countries, liberal, now often prefixed by neo, is a fighting word used with exactly the opposite meaning to that which it has in America, to describe a heartless small-government economic philosophy and a global order in which the World Bank and International Monetary Fund boss poor countries around, forcing them to adopt market-based economic policies. Of course, as our article argued, the value need not be lost with the language. If it is not easy to define liberal, it is easy to spot its rivals, authoritarianism and fundamentalism of all kinds. Whatever the confusion over the meanings of liberal, one of its elements has always been optimism. Even if the word itself fades, the faith behind it will not. And nor, we hope, will the faith in our tasting menu long enough at least to return next week. But for now, that's it. If you have any thoughts, you can get in touch with us via Twitter at Economist Radio or on email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 